Welcome to this episode of Science of Camera. My name is Sebastian Remy, and in this podcast, I'm talking to scientists around the world about their research, advancements they've made, and how they got to do what they do. My guest in this episode of Science of Camera is Rebecca Pinels, who is a chemical engineer and scientist with the Landry Lab at UC Berkeley. We talked about recent work where Rebecca and her colleagues described optical detection and sensing of coronavirus with the help of carbon nanotube nanosensors. It was extremely interesting to hear Rebecca describe why nanotubes are so useful for biochemical detection and how this project developed over many months of experimental work. I'm sure you will enjoy this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Teledyne Princeton Instruments, leading manufacturer of scientific cameras and spectrographs for low-light measurements from X-rays to infrared light. Discuss your application and book an online product demonstration at princetoninstruments.com. Can you just um, start maybe by just introducing yourself to the audience? Sure. So my name is Rebecca Pinels, and I'm uh, currently finishing up my PhD at UC Berkeley in uh, chemical and biomolecular engineering, and I work with Professor Marquita Landry. And so broadly, our lab uh, uses nanomaterials to probe and modify biological systems. And uh, more specifically, my research really centers around optical nanomaterials for biological sensing applications. So I predominantly work with single-walled carbon nanotubes. And the reason we choose this nanoparticle in particular is because uh, these carbon nanotubes display very, I would say, unique and advantageous properties, uh, both optically and physically. So in terms of physical properties, uh, carbon nanotubes exist at the nanoscale, and this is really the scale at which we would want to probe uh, very fundamental biological phenomena as they're occurring uh, in the place that they're occurring. And also, uh, carbon nanotubes are sort of quasi uh, one-dimensional nanoparticles, they're very, very high aspect ratio. So this means they have a huge surface area upon which we can load uh, different molecules to make nanosensors, so sensing moieties, or uh, delivery cargoes uh, towards nanoparticle-based delivery applications. So in terms of optical properties, uh, these single-wall carbon nanotubes are, I would say, distinct from other types of uh, carbon nanotubes with this single wall. Uh, that means that they have this intrinsic band gap. They have a, a near-infrared fluorescence emission. And this occurs within the tissue transparency window. So that's anywhere between 800 to 1,300 or so nanometers. And that means that we can image through uh, biological media. And I would say mainly we use this towards uh, in vivo imaging applications. But more recently, uh, we, we've started to think about how this is useful for imaging in things like biofluids. So if we uh, move to diagnostics, we can see the fluorescence signal uh, transmissible through different scattering and optically occluded media. So with these advantages uh, of carbon nanotubes, we've developed different platforms for biosensing and uh, imaging and, and delivery. Uh, predominantly in terms of sensing, we work with uh, doing neurotransmitter dynamics within brains. And in terms of delivery, uh, we have a plant genetic cargo sort of delivery project in our lab. I'm curious how you got into this field. What, what appealed to you to do this uh, kind of research? And how, how did you get to do what you're doing right now? 
That is a great question. Uh, I think if I, you know, many years ago were to see this now, I'd be a bit surprised. So uh, my, my background from undergrad has been in chemical engineering as well as now in my PhD. Uh, and in chemical engineering, uh, for my undergrad research, I really, you know, tested the waters in many different types of research. Uh, I would say predominantly my sort of thesis research in undergrad was focused on heterogeneous catalysis. And so this is totally different. Uh, and this was for applications in biomass-based fuels. But with that, I, I realized I really liked research and that I found surface interactions really fascinating. So I was specifically looking at how catalyst particles interact and, and sort of rely on interactions with uh, the catalyst support layer. And so after that, I tried out different kinds of research, but I would say uh, my, my fascination with nano, the, the nano world really came about during a summer research experience at uh, the Colorado School of Mines. So this was a NSF funded REU, and I was working with Professor Alan Selinger, and we were doing silicon-based quantum dot work. And the application was still not biology, so I was, you know, very incrementally making my way towards uh, where I am now. But, but I realized, you know, this, this world of nano is fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I would spend all day in research lab not knowing what I was doing because you can't look at your product really and see anything. It's just, you know, liquid. Uh, and you have to hope that your, your colloids are somewhere in there and that they're functional. But I think, you know, with this, I was learning about fluorescence uh, as well as different conjugation chemistries on nanoparticles, and that really sparked my interest, I would say, in uh, going more towards nanotechnology applications. And then uh, when, when I arrived in grad school, I, I really thought I would continue on with my catalysis research. But uh, when we first enter the program here at Berkeley, each professor gives a research seminar. And I saw Professor Marquita Landry's research seminar and I absolutely changed my mind. I said, you know, right afterwards, I thought, wow, this is, this is what I need to be doing. This is the kind of science I, I want to be doing for my PhD. So I would, you know, usually like to say I'm, I make sort of slow and careful decisions, but that was really a, a step change, I would say. Um, but I am very excited to be involved in this kind of research, especially now where it feels like we can help at least a little bit in the current uh, pandemic situation in applying these nanotechnologies to probe and understand biological systems. You uh, lead authored a, a, a paper where you just published a preprint that's related to the COVID-19 virus. So can you tell us exactly or, or kind of in simple terms what this paper is kind of about? What's the work you did there? Sure. Uh, I should begin by saying, uh, you know, none of us in the Landry Lab are virus experts, and we've, we've really just been uh, applying what we know to this new problem, but we've been very lucky uh, to have not only a great team within our lab, but also collaborators uh, across different schools and, uh, you know, different countries who have really helped with this work. So, you know, just right at the beginning, uh, we have this team in the Landry Lab, as well as Uh, John Pack at UCSF, Lili Kuo at the New York Department of Health, and then two great scientists at uh, Li Jin Biomedical in Taiwan, uh, Chasel Trang and uh, Louis Chang. So, you know, these people have been, and of course, Marquita Landry, uh, these people have been really instrumental in having this work come out so quickly uh, and having this development happen 
very exciting. So now with that, uh, what we have sort of aimed to do is take our understanding of how proteins interact with carbon nanotubes and apply that to develop a nanosensor. And specifically, we wanted this nanosensor to uh, sense SARS-CoV-2, which is, of course, you know, directly relevant to the times right now. Uh, but we wanted some additional benefits that are currently not being seen in uh, pre-existing diagnostic technologies. So our goals for this were to have rapid real-time detection uh, with our previously developed carbon nanotube-based sensors, uh, for example, for dopamine, you know, molecular recognition is extremely fast and we have this rapid fluorescence readout. We wanted that to carry over to this new COVID-2 sensor. We also wanted to take advantage of the near-infrared uh, carbon nanotube signal and be able to detect COVID-2 in full biofluids. And this would eliminate the need for sample purification. And finally, uh, this is, you know, very different from the, the other tests that are currently on the market. So uh, we wanted this to come from an orthogonal supply chain and offer different kind of advantages, uh, as I've just mentioned. So with all that in mind, uh, my specific thesis project has really been in understanding and engineering protein carbon nanotube interactions. And so I thought, what if we could take a protein that already has innate affinity for the COVID-2 uh, protein, specifically the spike protein, that's the, the protein protruding from the, the virus surface. What if we could take that protein and put it on a nanotube and use the nanotube as a, a signal transducer? So this would you know, sense molecular recognition and then give a, a readable signal for us to harness. And so this ended up working very well for the ACE2 receptor protein. So this ACE2 protein is, uh, it's, it's on our own cells, it's on the host cell membrane. And this is the protein that the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus uses to gain cell entry. So that is uh, the ACE2 spike protein binding is the specific molecular recognition uh, event that we wanted to take advantage of. And so uh, as a first step, we needed to see, will this ACE2 protein adsorb to the carbon nanotube surface? And so uh, I would say we want to generally use non-covalent modification of the carbon nanotubes such that we don't disrupt the, the pristine uh, graphitic lattice because that's what gives the carbon nanotube its fluorescence. So we want the protein to adsorb but not disrupt the carbon nanotube surface. And that ended up working out very nicely. We were able to use a suite of different techniques to characterize that interaction. Uh, so we were able to at least make this uh, protein nanotube hybrid. That was step one. After that, uh, of course, we want this to be a sensor. We want it to recognize the COVID-2 spike proteins uh, specifically, selectively, and so on. And so uh, we, were, we were very excited uh, that indeed this nanosensor did uh, recognized the spike protein, and it did so in a concentration-dependent manner, uh, as well as we were able to show selectivity across different uh, coronavirus spike proteins, as well as we immobilized these nanosensors and showed that they work in the sur surface immobilized state. So as the, the last piece to this story, we were also very excited to see that our nanosensors were also responsive to virus-like particles, and these are formed by co-expressing the, the main viral proteins together uh, and 
this is sort of as close as we can get to the real COVID-2 virus without actually having to work with the, the live virus. So this was very exciting uh, to come up with this, this carbon nanotube based sensor design. When was it clear to you that you want to attempt this? There is the aspect, oh, there is a, a, yeah, it's a really hot topic right now. People want to figure something out quickly. Was it to you really quickly clear that's something you want to attempt? Um, uh, and uh, how how did that come about? How long did that take to decide? Yes. So I think uh, with the with the pandemic, uh, all of us being forced to work from home, uh, at some point, I'm not sure, you know, how this discussion started, but within our lab, we were just thinking, you know, how can we help? How can we pivot what we know uh, to approach this new problem? And I think there's actually this, this great uh, short review that came out of Nature sort of recently, you know, how can nanotech help with fighting this virus? And uh, we, you know, this was after we'd already started working on it, but we saw that and we were like, yes, this is exactly, you know, what we can be doing to help. Uh, I think nanotech is uniquely poised to solve these kinds of problems. And so uh, I think, like I mentioned, you know, we're used to using carbon nanotubes for these very similar problems. We've never thought about viral rapid diagnostics, but the the advantages of carbon nanotubes lend themselves very well to this to this problem. And so, you know, usually this near infrared light uh, emission from the carbon nanotubes is great for imaging in tissue. Well, now it's really great for imaging through uh, you know, these viscous uh, scattering biofluids like saliva, mucus, sputum. Uh, so, okay, that's that's to our benefit. Uh, we can also take advantage of that rapid molecular recognition. And then the next question was, how do we do this? And so uh, the paper that it, we currently submitted is just one of a few different nanosensor constructs we actually have going in parallel. So uh, what we're really excited about, I think, with this project is that we have this team in the Landry Lab that we're all working on different nanosensor constructs. We're, we're meeting very regularly to go through results, uh, modify our approach, and try new things. And with that, we've, I think, done a really good job of uh, developing nanosensors with different kind of advantages. And uh, I think in my case, this, this non-covalent approach is just one example. And it, it worked out very well for the ACE2 protein. But if you don't have a protein that uh, you know, has this innate interaction for the carbon nanotube surface, what do you do? And we actually found that uh, to be the case with an antibody for uh, actually the CoV-1 virus, but it, it also shows cross-reactivity for the CoV-2 spike. And with that, I wasn't able to adsorb the antibody onto the carbon nanotube surface. And that wasn't wholly uh, unexpected based on my prior research. I showed that uh, immunoglobulins actually don't generally interact too much with the carbon nanotube surface. But in that case, what we can do is take advantage of covalent chemistries to link that antibody uh, to the carbon nanotube surface. And uh, as I mentioned, we don't want to disrupt the graphitic lattice of the carbon nanotube. So we can employ these very kind of uh, uni uh, selective chemistries to only, uh, you know, present a low kind of modification uh, yield on the surface. And so, you know, that's just one example um, of what else we're trying in the lab. And I think uh, having this sort of team approach to solve this problem has been really 
uh, you know, motivational. Of course, we're all trying to work quickly and carefully, but I think having this, this team of people work simultaneously on the same problem from different approaches has been uh, really, really awesome. It's really interesting to hear this degree of knowledge and control you have about the nanotubes. You talked about the fluorescence and um, uh, kind of this optical way of detecting and this wave, the wavelength you're using gives you a, certain advantages that you can uh, look inside of tissue, as you described. Um, uh, but you use kind of... Um, Uh, yeah, optical tools like imaging and spectroscopy tools to uh, in investigate uh, the materials in your research. So how, um, what kind of information do you get, like specifically spectroscopy, let's say, um, uh, what kind of information do you get from spectroscopy and at what stages in a project like this um, do, you, do you apply, uh, apply that? Sure. Uh, so with these optical nano tools, I think, yeah, near-infrared spectroscopy has really been you know, instrumental to monitor our nanosensor responses and then iterate on our design strategies. And so specifically, uh, we have this kind of hybrid construct where the protein, in this case, recognizes our analyte, the virus, uh, the viral protein, and that induces some sort of change in conformation of the protein. And the carbon nanotube um, to which that, that sensing protein is adsorbed uh, is very sensitive to the local dielectric environment. So that leads to a change in the carbon nanotube surface. And that could be, um, you know, if it's a change in the local dielectric environment, that manifests as a sylvatochromic shift in the emission uh, of the carbon nanotube, as well as if there's some difference in uh, solvent exclusion or access to the carbon nanotube surface, uh, that then sometimes leads to an increase or a decrease in the carbon nanotube fluorescence. So what we do generally to start out with our nanosensor design is we start in the well plate and we do spectroscopy experiments to monitor what is the carbon nanotube uh, sensor baseline fluorescence, what is it when we add these different analytes, and do we have a sizable response. And so in the case of molecular recognition with the spike protein, Uh, we were very excited to see uh, a very large increase in the fluorescence. Um, and in the case of the controls that you add, uh, one would hope that you don't see that same response, you know, if we don't have selective molecular recognition occurring. And that was the case here. Um, and in, in this case, it's really nice that we have a turn-on sensor, so a, a large increase in the fluorescence. Um, of course, there are other sensors in our lab and in other labs that function with a decrease in the fluorescence, so a quenching response. Um, but in, in some ways, it's just easier to have this, this really large increase in fluorescence um, yeah, as our, as our sensor readout. And then in terms of uh, imaging, so beyond spectroscopy, we also use imaging. Um, I mentioned that we, we start our screens in the well plate format, but ultimately, Uh, in these cases, or, or for this particular application of rapid diagnostics, it would be really uh, excellent if we could adapt these nanosensors into a surface immobilized format. So you can imagine a paper-based uh, sort of assay for rapid diagnostics. And uh, in our case for imaging, we use glass plates to start off, or uh, micro-well dishes rather, where we can immobilize our nanosensors on the surface of that uh, glass 
on the glass surface and then image and similarly collect, uh, in this case, a large increase in the fluorescence emission when these nanosensors are exposed to uh, either the, the CoV2 spike protein or the virus-like particle. And uh, I should say uh, we use, you know, Tildine Princeton instruments uh, for our near IR <laughs> spectrometer uh, and our and our pylon IR, uh, you know, in gas array. So with this, uh, as well as a, a custom-built setup, it's been really fun to test out our, our sensors in-house as we design them and as we, you know, iterate through different designs. So how many iterations do you go through uh, until you uh, uh, saw kind of success for the first time? Yes, it, it definitely depends. Um, I think in my case, I was doing just a very, this sensor is very simple and straightforward to make where I'm just passively adsorbing the protein on. But even with that simplicity, uh, tuning the ratio, uh, you know, tuning the different incubation parameters is really important. So I was having colloidal stability issues. If you add too much protein, uh, you can get aggregation of the carbon nanotubes. And uh, I should say these carbon nanotubes are only fluorescent uh, when they're singly dispersed. And if you just add them into water as, as is, they remain bundled up because they're extremely hydrophobic. They're made of all carbon. Uh, they do not like water. And so then you have no fluorescence. So if you don't correctly passivate the carbon nanotubes with proteins, they're not soluble and they're not fluorescent. And so what I actually did to, uh, you know, exchange the protein onto the carbon nanotube surface is starting out by suspending the carbon nanotubes in DNA, which is kind of a weird choice in this case. But I should say that uh, previous work in our lab has shown that when you probe tip sonicate, uh, so applying very high energy sound waves, uh, when you probe tip sonicate carbon nanotubes with DNA, you get these really beautiful suspensions. Uh, and we've shown through uh, both experimental and modeling kind of you know, molecular dynamic simulations that this DNA actually wraps helically around the carbon nanotube, which is very cool. But in this case, not as useful because I wanted to have ACE2 adsorbed to the surface. So what I found based on uh, my prior work is that if you just incubate the protein with these already dispersed carbon nanotubes, the protein replaces the DNA, DNA on the surface. It, it kicks it off. And so I think optimizing that ratio, uh, figuring out the best kind of starting group of DNA, uh, or that it is DNA, uh, took some time. But And then, let's see, you asked about iterations. I don't have an exact number, but I think you know, many months worth of, of very small iterations, uh, you know, just changing one parameter at a time, uh, trying to get the best response as well as physical properties. So do our sensors work if I leave them on the bench top overnight? Um, they do now, but that was not always the case. And, you know, we have ongoing work in our lab where we're looking to improve the sensitivity. Uh, right now, we want to go to a lower uh, concentration of the COVID-2 spike protein that we're able to detect. And we're also looking to inc uh, increase the function in different biofluids. So we do that by passivating any remaining free carbon nanotube surface area. And so that's, you know, we still have a lot of work to do, but we're just very excited that we have at least one kind of initial iteration that, that is showing uh, promise at this stage. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I find this just in general really uh, fasc fascinating to 
illuminate kind of the scientific process. Um, so where do you where do you take this from here? What's kind of your point of view on this? Is your point of view, oh, this is going to be really useful to have an additional test that people will be using from now on? Like in, in a few weeks or months, they have something ready and they can use it in the field. Or is your point of view, I could imagine, it might just be, hey, we are still kind of fundamentally researching these materials. And it's just really cool that we have uh, in our team. And when we have all this expertise together, we can do this fairly quickly so that we understand the materials even better. And then in the future, that will be really helpful to quickly create new tests and uh, uh, apply to other kind of uh, uh, problems? Yes, great question. I think starting out, uh, we were, you know, sort of hesitant. Uh, I would say our lab is very excited about both, you know, fundamentals as well as applications. But this was a new field. Uh, we weren't sure if anything would work. Uh, and, you know, as we sort of iterated through to keep morale high, we're thinking, you know, no matter what, we're learning things, we're learning fundamental things about how our systems work and how we can develop these nanosensors and future nanosensors. But I think at this stage, uh, we're also very optimistic. Uh, you know, this worked, this is just, as I mentioned, just one nanosensor. We're also working on others. And uh, we're, you know, very grateful to the funding uh, that, you know, believed in this. And we're also very excited to continue developing this kind of nanotechnology. I don't see this as, you know, being one of the off-the-shelf tests next week, uh, but but I think we're optimistic, and our next steps are really in adapting this to, you know, where could this fill a need in the, the current, uh, I don't know, gap in, in diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2. I think you know, there's, there's very exciting news every day, even just this morning, uh, you know, the, the vaccine showing promising results from Pfizer. But uh, I think no matter what, diagnostic testing will continue to be an issue that is really critical to uh, containing the spread of disease. So with that, uh, I would say we're still working. We're, we're moving towards applied, mm -hmm. um, but I think we're also realistic about, yeah, the timeline, I don't think will be a week or so. Um, still a lot of work to, to be done, but as a next step, we're also looking into how can we adapt these nanosensors into uh, more amenable kind of surface immobilized formats. So, you know, paper and hydrogel and whatnot. And there's been some really excellent work from different groups in carbon nanotube uh, research, including uh, Michael Strano's group at MIT. So, you know, there is existing literature and now we're using that applied to a new system. Cool. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca, for explaining that all to us. That was really interesting. And I will highly recommend to everyone to check out your group's work. Um, so it's really fascinating and it's really cool to see uh, uh, how, how this nanotechnology uh, is really useful. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thanks again to my guest Rebecca Pinals from the Landry Lab at UC Berkeley. I've included links to the COVID sensing paper we talked about and the lab website in the show notes so you can follow up with their exciting research. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Science of Camera. Consider subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and follow Princeton Instruments on social media to get informed about new episodes. Check out princetoninstruments.com for the latest in scientific camera and spectroscopy technology for physical and life sciences. See you next time and have a great day.